Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Los Angeles. I'm Nathan Fox and with me in Washington, D.C., Ben Olson. Ben, how is uh, springtime on the East Coast? Uh, it's it's a little cold, actually, but it's, I like that, so it's it's nice. You going to make it to any like baseball games this year or anything yeah. like that? You ever take the kids out? No, I only go if like uh, a lot of family members are going and I am sort of compelled by the momentum of the event to go. I, I really don't see the interest in baseball. It's such a slow sport. I know that's <laughs> heretical probably to some people, but um, just the whole, hey, bad, bad, bad thing is just, um, yeah, it puts me to sleep. <laughs> yeah, well, you and everyone else who didn't grow up like playing little league baseball, you know, you, you got to be like really into it. I think to be into it. Yeah, well, I'm going to make it to a couple games this year, but I, I don't go to that many. When I was a kid, I did play little league for a little while, and oh, you did? yeah, and I was a pitcher actually. But um, yeah, I just I was mainly doing sports because everyone else was, and I, not that I have anything against it, um, but. I think I enjoyed soccer the most and uh, yeah. even then I still don't watch it. So, yeah, I actually watched the uh, whole Dodgers game last night because my, my man Clayton Kershaw was pitching, who is the best pitcher in all of major league baseball. So, and the Dodgers were playing the giants, which is their big rival. So I went to a bar with intention of just watching uh, a little bit of Kershaw. Yeah. And then I just got hooked into the game and, um, so I actually sat, I, and especially on TV, I like never watch a whole game on TV, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, just decided to catch one game so I can feel like I know what's going on with the Dodgers. That's f- but now I won't watch them again for another week until Kershaw pitches again. Well, that's funny. I, I don't know anything about baseball. So if you tell me that Kershaw is the best uh, pitcher ever, then I'll just uh, repeat that anywhere anyone talks about baseball. Um, I don't think he's the best pitcher ever, not yet, but he is like if he keeps going the way he's been going, he could be the best pitcher ever. Yeah, oh, he's, best pitcher he's the best pitcher in baseball for sure. Yeah. yeah. Right now he is the best pitcher, but he's, uh, he's got quite a career going and has the chance to be the best of all time. I think. So I was actually, where was I? Oh no. I, well, I was in the Bay area when, um, you know, the, uh, the beta breakers game, uh, yeah. the, the earthquake and everything. So, Oh, that's not the beta break. Oh wait, what's the beta breakers? That's the, beta breakers is the race where everybody gets naked and drunk and everything. I'm like confusing things in my mind. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. What the heck? They get drunk and what do they do? Yeah. There's like like a a 5k or something like that that goes across San Francisco. (laughs) You run from the bay, like down by the ballpark all the way to ocean beach. Okay. Yeah. And people wear costumes and they get, they used to be, they used to be, um, people would have like a shopping cart with a keg of beer in it and they would roll that the whole route and just every, it's just like one big moving party. Um, I don't know. So of course, yeah, go ahead. Well, San Francisco is getting boring now and like making too many rules and regulations. So now they don't let people take the shopping carts anymore. And they've, they've toned down the beta breakers quite a bit. There still are some really interesting things though, like the salmon, which are people who dress up like salmon, like with a fin on the top of their head and then run the entire race backward. Wow. Interesting. Because they're the salmon. Yeah. So they're going upstream the whole way. And uh, out of just other kind of quirky shit like that. 
it's San Francisco. I miss it sometimes. Well, also, um, isn't it just the state of our, our our society, right? We no longer have to fight off tigers, find food on a constant daily basis. <laughs> and so we need uh, to do something with our time. So we think, oh, let's dress up as salmon and run backwards. Yes. Yes. Right. Um, oh, and they don't run the right. They don't run backward. I mean, they run the course from end to start. Oh, so they run. <laughs> I thought they literally ran salmon. I was like, wow, that's no, 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 no. They run, they run forward, but they're yeah, just running that, in the opposite direction. That would make more direction. sense with your salmon thing. I was just like, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess going upstream is backward. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. Cool. Well, I, yeah. so I guess my, you mean the Bay bridge series, which was 1989, when the Giants and the A's played each other in the World Series, and it was a really big deal. And during Game 1, or right before the start of Game 1, there was a pretty major earthquake. Yeah, the, yeah, the a very major one, the Loma Prieta, right? That was... Yeah, where were you? I was in Palo Alto at the time, and uh, I was in the car coming home from a trumpet lesson, because I did oh, wow. trumpet as a kid. And I looked outside, and the, the... What was it? You know, the light the street light was swinging back and forth and my mom said, Oh, I have a flat. And then, uh, she, then she looks around and she's like, Oh, a lot of other things are moving. So, um, good. It's just an earthquake. So. <laughs> yeah. And no big deal. And luckily you were not on one of the double decker highways that got pancaked during that earthquake. You didn't get stuck, um, smashed in your vehicle and the, didn't need to use the jaws of life to try to get you out or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, no, lu- luckily <laughs> that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, I was at my parents' house. I was uh, in like junior high, I guess, at the time, 89. Yeah, it would have been right before I started high school. I was excited. I was getting ready for the game, going to watch it on TV. And uh, then, yeah, the, all, all of a sudden the I looked outside and the water was sloshing out of my parents' swimming pool. Oh, wow. A small swimming pool in the back, and the water was at, was at, there were waves in the swimming pool. It was like, what the hell is going on? And uh, yeah, then no game. They ended up they ended up uh, well. I mean, a piece of the the Oakland Bay Bridge fell down. You remember those famous pictures yeah. from that? And um, then they ended up delaying the start of the series for like ten days or something. Yeah, so back at that time, I was a big Mark McGuire fan, I think. Oh, that of course. Was his day, and Jose Canseco. But um, in any case, long story short, although I was an Ace fan then, I ended up I, – I have a Giants hat now. And I, I like wearing hats every now and then. So I wear it, and people come up to me all the time out here because they're like, oh, you're a Giants fan? Let's talk, you know? And they always yeah. tell me all this stuff, and I'm always just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes I go along with it, and other times I'm like – you know, buddy, I'm sorry. I have no idea what you're talking about, but have a good day. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll give you one thing you can talk about with your when people bring up the Giants. You need to talk about Madison Bumgarner, who is the Giants' best pitcher by far. Okay. Who just went on the disabled list because he hurt himself in a dirt bike accident. He was on a <laughs> – they had an off day in Colorado, and he went on like a two-hour dirt bike trail ride – and apparently near the end of the ride, he crashed onto his pitching shoulder. Oof. And uh, it is unclear when he is going to come back, if he's going to come back in uh, 2017. And he is by far their best pitcher. So uh, if you if you get anybody talking about the Giants, you can say like, oh boy, 
tough one about Bumgarner, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Good, thanks. You can say, like, what an idiot. Why was he riding a dirt bike like that? <laughs> good. Yeah, I'll use that. Thanks. Okay. Um, today on the show, we are going to answer a whole raft of listener emails. And also, at the end of today's show, we will have an interview with student loan bankruptcy lawyer, Jay Fleischman. Uh, Jay is an attorney in Pasadena who uh, not only practices bankruptcy law or uh, student loan law, he trains other lawyers how to do student loan law, which is a promising area apparently for lawyers to practice. So we'll have that at the end of the show. I did have one last thought and I don't mean to derail this, but no, you know, Trump ahead. is coming up on his hundred days or he already hit it. Do you know when? Oh yeah. And, um, on all the news networks, they're showing like they're going through all the promises that he made and they're like, yep. he hasn't fulfilled any single one of them except maybe the Supreme Court nomination thing. And I was thinking, you know, we're almost up on our 100th podcast. And what have, <laughs> have we accomplished in our first 100 podcasts or episodes? And it's like, I think we've done something. You know, we've done something. We didn't promise anything. And we did That's something true. and he promised everything and d- has done pretty much nothing. So <laughs> he's played a lot of golf. He has played a lot of golf. He's flown to Florida a lot. I saw a list of all of the recent presidents and how many countries they visited in the first hundred days. Mm-hmm. And it was like Obama visited like, I don't know, it was like 15 countries or something. Yeah. George W. Bush uh, only visited Canada and Mexico, but he did visit Canada and Mexico. Trump, zero. Zero international <laughs> visits. <laughs> Why would he? He's busy making America great again. He doesn't need to go anywhere else. Yeah. Also, he would get protested ruthlessly, I'm sure, no matter where oh, he goes. Oh, no one wants to invite him. Oh, it'd be so yeah. awful. Amazing. Um, cool. So... This first email says, hey, guys, I'm wondering if you have helped people with strategies for long-term studying. I have three LSAT registrations on my record, including a withdrawal, and I'm planning to take it a fourth and final time in September. Um, That's because the oldest one of – I actually spoke to this uh, correspondent on the phone already, and uh, I know that the first of these three – registrations has expired now and uh, he called and got got official word from the LSAC that he is going to be able to take it in September um so he's taking it he's registered and taking it for the fourth time so wait in September just let's just clarify that then so he took it in sep no no when did he take it initially oh it doesn't say it was in 2015 yeah it does say it in September 2015 is when he took it oh yeah the first time but that no that's his uh Oh, that's his first official score. I got it. So the yeah. diagnostic. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay. So that was that's actually pretty interesting to know because that's exactly the two year mark, right? Like if he took it in September right. two thousand fifteen, you can take it again in September two thousand seventeen. Basically, your three is going to start to reset at that point. Yes, yes, and you have to call LSAC to be sure. You know, I, I would say once you're registered, then you know for sure that you're going to be allowed to take it. Yeah. 
because they seem to be changing their minds about this. I mean, I think the September 2015 test was on a later calendar day. Yeah, for sure. Because the September 2017 test is early, Super right? early. Like right in the middle of September. Yeah. So it isn't, it hasn't actually been two calendar, two full calendar years, but they seem to be saying, oh no, we're going to go by, uh, by cycles. So the September 2015 is expiring, uh, and you can take it again in September 2017. Also, in his email, he said withdrawal, but he means cancellation. Because if he hadn't canceled, uh, then it wouldn't. If he had withdrawn, then that wouldn't have even counted anyway, right? Yeah. Um, so, but he it wasn't. It wasn't a withdrawal. It was actually a cancellation. So he had two actual attempts, or two. He had three attempts, one of which he canceled, and now he's able to take it a fourth time because his first one is expiring. Anyway, hey, um, sorry, random. Why yeah. why do they even have this cap? What's their incentive? They could get more money if they let people take it multiple times. I don't, I don't get it. Yeah, they feel like I don't know. I don't know. They just don't want people taking it all the time. Huh. Okay. I don't know why. Uh, scarcity. They want to make it like, make a, it seem like artificial, yeah. artificial scarcity. Yeah. yeah. Like we only allow you to take it three times so that to try to get everybody to take it three times. Yeah. I wonder if that almost like implies that you should, you or should something. take it. Three yeah. Times. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Um, okay. It says my diagnostic was a 146. Since then I've scored 158, 163, and one cancellation. While studying, I have been working long hours and managed to get on the quote preferred wait list at Georgetown with my 158 before my February score was available. So he got preferred wait list and then the 163 hadn't yet shown up on the record. Um, like everyone else, I want to break 170. But by September and the new admission cycle, I will have been studying for more than two years. I've taken a couple month-long breaks and at times only been able to give an hour every few days. Do you have advice for how to approach the next few months? In addition, I'm considering a few hours of tutoring from an LSAT tutor who does Skype or Google Hangouts. Do either of you have availability in the near future? Thanks, uh, George Town. Not his real name. Yeah. Uh, ben, do you have availability for tutoring on Skype and Google Hangouts? I do. Uh, especially if there's flexibility with the time. Uh, evenings are pretty pretty booked, either with class or uh, tutoring, I guess. That's just the most popular time. But yeah, during the day or on the weekends, I can usually uh, make time and I'm always happy to fit in another student if, if it works, you know, schedule wise. Cool. How does somebody schedule you if they want to work uh, with you one-on-one? Uh, the easiest thing is just to email me at ben at strategyprep.com and we'll start talking about where you're at and what makes the most sense and when you can meet and then just go from there. Um, a lot of times people wonder how many hours they should get and, you know, it just, it varies from person to person and really where you're at and, how much time you have until the test. So a lot of times I just suggest to do it hourly and then play it by ear based on how much progress you make. And sometimes people can make progress pretty fast and thus don't need as many hours as they think they do. So, yeah, same here. Uh, I have availability on throughout the day and evenings as well. Um, you can check my availability online through my website, 
or you can go directly to foxlsat.youcanbook.me and that'll show you my calendar and you can just put yourself right on my calendar. Uh, I do free 30-minute consultations so you can schedule a free consultation anytime. If you want to uh, get started with you know actual LSAT tutoring, you can just go ahead and book a first session. You the website knows my calendar better than I know my calendar. So it's easier for you to just go ahead and grab a spot and, uh, then we will get cracking. I don't usually try to sell people like big packages of tutoring because I feel like I'd rather just work one, one meeting at a time and see if, you know, if it's productive and if we both agree that we want to continue and do more than we can, but frequently I'll be able to get people unstuck in just one meeting. And if that works, then I, you know, that's a win-win for, for, I feel like, and I, I don't really, that's great. If I can, if I can help you in one meeting, awesome. <laughs> you know, I don't really want to do 10 meetings if one is all it's going to take. So, um, with a student like this, Ben, any, any tips for how you might work with them or what you think you might advise if somebody is, do you think this seems like a good candidate for tutoring? Uh, yeah. Given this person's familiarity with the test, um, and what they've been through, uh, if they're being held back, the question is what, what have they been doing wrong? Maybe they haven't necessarily been doing anything wrong, but you know, there might be something that they're not thinking about correctly. Uh, in this case, since Georgetown has probably taken all the tests, I might ask if there are any tests that Georgetown hasn't ever seen, uh, we would definitely want to set those to the side and make sure to take them at a good time when he's ready and then um, figure out tests that maybe he hasn't seen in a long time and probably start working through those. I don't think there's any problem with redoing tests. Uh, and so the, he says, do you have any advice for how to approach the next few months? I mean, the advice would still be pretty similar. 35 minute sections. Yeah. I just might be a little strategic about which tests I take. So you don't burn through tests that you've never seen before. You can kind of spread them out over time or at least ones that you haven't seen in a long time so that you get that realistic assessment every now and then, as opposed to an assessment based on something you've seen pretty recently. So June and October and December of 2016, all the 2016 tests, he didn't take any of those officially. Mm -hmm. um, so those might be really good tests for him to use diagnostically between now and the September test. Yeah once a month or something to keep track of where he is yeah. with a new test. Yeah, exactly. Definitely make sure he does see all of those logic games, right? For sure. Before the, uh, before the test. Um, also, I feel like you can yeah. dig into the past tests and pull out all the harder games and the harder reading passages and stuff like that. You may not have time to do all those tests. No, you do not have time to do all those tests. But some of the harder games from those can be worthwhile, especially if you're at that point, if you're yeah. doing well in games but still not getting zero wrong. That might be a place yeah. to focus. By harder, I, I mean, you, you probably just mean different. I mean, I was uh, teaching Prep Test 80 to my class in San Francisco last weekend, and um, I, I hadn't spent a whole lot of time with that test because it's so new. But uh, I noticed Prep Test 80 game number four. Okay, yeah. Uh, the one with the buildings? Yeah, yep. That's so easy. That game is hilariously easy. Yeah. 
it's like a joke how easy it is. I mean, and, but it, but people just freeze, right? People get totally flummoxed on that and just stop panic. Yeah. Don't really pay attention, but boy, is that game easy when you realize that, you know, spoilers, if you haven't done prep test 80, you maybe want to close your ears. But when you realize that the, every, uh, company has to own like an equal weight of buildings, yeah. like an equal wealth mm-hmm. of buildings. Mm-hmm. And when you realize that they start with the same value of buildings and that they always have to have the same value of buildings, then you realize that all the buildings are completely interchangeable. You just have to add up to the same amount of value every time. Yep. And oh my God, that game's easy. You know, it's interesting you say that because um, what you said was once you realize this, right? And I think that's where yeah. people maybe fight back a little bit, right? With what we say on the podcast, what we say in class or whatever. They're like, yeah, but I didn't realize that. And so what you have to realize is that on the LSAT, you're learning how to think critically no matter what they throw at you, whether it's something that's familiar or more importantly, what's unfamiliar. And when you realize that the game becomes easy. And so then the real question is, how do you get to a point where you can realize those things? And the answer is sort of simple. You just slow down and think about whatever it is they're talking about. And if something doesn't make sense and you reread it and you can also, and this is very true in the games, you can play with the rules. Like a lot of times I will read the rules. I will set them up. I will write them down and then I will sit there and I will think about them. I'll think, well, wait, okay. So could T go all the way in the front of this list or could it go all the way at the, Oh wait, no, it can't. So that would mean this. Now I make a realization And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, this game is easy. And everybody else is like, well, yeah, but I didn't make that realization. Well, that's just because you didn't sit there and think about what you've read and then play around with it just for a little bit. And of course everybody says, oh, I don't have time for that. But I don't think you have time not to do that. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah. It's, uh, I was, uh, I was like regaling my class with, you know, what if you had spent 60 seconds meditating you know, you, you, you read the rules of that game and, and you re- just look at just the setup. You haven't looked at any of the questions yet. You get to the end of it. You maybe you, you probably make a little table of like, here's what buildings are owned by each, you know, what buildings in what category are owned by each group. Mm-hmm. And you look at the way you, you see the way the trading works. Like it's, oh, two class threes give you one class two and two class twos give you one class three. Mm-hmm. Oh, so it would take four class threes to get one class one. Mm -hmm. Okay, I see. And then if you just sat there while everyone else rushed into the first question, if you like sat there and meditated for a minute on the game, you know, just like kind of letting the game wash over you or, or, or just play, just interacting with the game, just thinking about the system. And then if you make the realization that they all own an equal wealth of buildings like they have an equal weight of buildings and that the trades are always going to be fair Mm -hmm. just equal wealth for equal wealth and then you realize that nobody has any affinity for any particular building it's just oh after an unlimited number of trades i can own any of the buildings i want they just have to add up to a certain amount of value 
Yeah. And if you, because once you make that real is, you know, and so you come out of your meditation 90 seconds later or two minutes later, you come out of this meditation with just that one realization that, Oh, so as long as each company has for any company, every company must always own exactly the same amount of value that they owned to begin with. Mm -hmm. If you realize that about the game, then you cut through those questions incredibly quickly. It's just like, I mean, cause it could be like two minutes of meditation where you're not externally, it doesn't look like you're doing anything, but you're just making that one realization about the game. And then you do all the questions in like 90 seconds. Yep. You know, so we talk about this a lot. It's the same on the games. It's the same on the logical reasoning. It's the same after you get done reading the reading comprehension passage. Mm-hmm. It's the difference is that moment that we are willing to take to make sure that everything registers, right? To make sure to to make sure we're we're, we're getting it, like that we're really engaged. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's like we're taking charge of the test instead of letting the test be in charge of us. Yeah. When you get to the question too quickly, when you get to the answer choices too quickly you're going to get battered around by their tricks and traps and distractions. Mm -hmm. But when you take that distance, you know, keeping the test at arm's length, you, and it really, and it really hits you. You, you really, you really do comprehend what they're saying. You see the rules, you see the system, you understand what game is being played then it's just so much simpler when you go to actually try to answer the questions. Yeah. So that's what we're talking about. We're we're talking about making the test easy by keeping it at arm's length a little bit and not just trying to go so goddamn fast all the time. Yeah. Um, anyway, that was a long digression. Do we have anything else that we want to add for uh, Georgetown and his long range study plan. One of his questions that we didn't maybe cover specifically Mm. is, have you worked with anyone who has done this before? Have you ever worked with anybody, uh, Ben, who has been studying for two years? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, it's not as common because most people don't endure that long, but people definitely come up and they're like, Hey, uh, what do I do? I've done everything. And my, my first question is always, okay, well, where are you scoring? And let's say in this case, in the mid 160s or whatever. And if it kind of depends on their attitude, and I don't think, I don't get the sense from Georgetown that he has this feeling, but sometimes there's this feeling like I've done everything. I don't think there's anything else I can do sometimes, right? And it's like, well, clearly you don't know some things, or you're not doing something totally correctly because you have room to improve. And if your score was in the uh, 170s, then I'd say maybe you have done everything and there's not much more to do. But um, at this point, I think a lot of times there's still some things that they they may have read through the uh, Power Score Bibles too. Sometimes, right? They're like, I've read through all of those. I've read through the LSAT trainer. I've read through these things. And Yeah, there's nothing more I can yeah. do. And then they do a practice test and they score 163. And it's like, well, what about these 15 questions that you – attempted and missed. Yeah. And what do you think about Clearly there's something you can do. (laughs) And and we start talking about them and there are things that they don't know, you know? And it's like, um, the other day I got a, 
I got a question right in class, but I actually quickly dismissed one of the wrong answers for the wrong reason. I just read it in uh, incorrectly and I got rid of it. And that was bad. Yeah. And I said, oh, yeah, well, that was – I mean, it's great that I got the right answer, but who cares? It's all about the reasoning. At the same time, though, I did have this thought in my head. I didn't elaborate on class, but I was like, ultimately, I was pre- – even even though I misinterpreted this, the way – I there was two problems that I had seen with the passage. And so um, even – even with this misinterpretation, I, I don't think I would have ever messed up and chosen this answer or incorrectly, you know, like avoided the right answer or something like that. I can't remember the exact circumstances, but I remember thinking it's like I had a safeguard. Like I had two ways of getting to yeah. the answer for that case. Of course. And so I was just thinking, I'm like, the more you know about this stuff, it's not like, oh, I see the right answer in a momentary blip of time and now I'm good to go. I don't need to learn anything more about this question. Um, there might be more there and that can make it easier for other questions that don't have those backups, which are why you're getting them wrong. Maybe even though in another context, you understood a very similar question. So, yeah, I mean, what you just said is it's because you have to make two mistakes in order to miss a question, Mm -hmm. right? You have to not only not pick the right answer, but you have to also separately pick one of the wrong answers and, that's something that we just rarely do. You know, we we don't pick an answer until we have a really good reason to believe that the entire answer choice is right. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's pretty common actually that I'm going to dismiss wrong answers for the wrong reasons mm. or for not not quite fully thought out reasons. Yeah, yeah. I bet happens a lot because I blew somebody's mind the other day because I I was talking about how uh, hey, each answer choice has an 80% chance of being wrong. I presume that the answer choices are wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm not going in there looking to make A the answer. I'm looking to quickly dismiss A because A is 80% wrong. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that means that sometimes I might dismiss an answer too quickly. Sometimes I might dismiss the right answer too quickly. Yeah. But in that case, I'm going to end up dismissing all five answers quickly and then I'll start over. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's totally fine because that's the kind of really, I want to be attacking these answer choices very critically. I don't want to be in there trying to make it the answer. And what I see students do is they, they'll like, they'll do, they'll do that. They'll, they'll dismiss the correct answer and then they'll get down to D or E and they'll just be like, oh, well then it's got to be this one. And they won't really think all the way through it before they pick it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, no way, man. You have to be equally critical all the way down through all five answers. And if you didn't find it on the first time through, then you're going to have to go back through them again. Otherwise, you're not giving yourself the the two chances to get it right, you know, or the two chances to not miss it. Yeah. So I think that could be really helpful for students to just remember that whatever answer you're looking at is probably not the answer. Mm -hmm. And before you circle it, you need to be sure that every word there, you know, that you're willing to vouch for every word and the full meaning of that right answer. Yeah. The four wrong answers, you actually don't have to thoroughly understand if they just kind of smell bad or they seem irrelevant or you're not even sure what it says. That's actually probably fine as long as you find an answer that you're fully willing to commit to. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Yeah. So it's not, I think students think they're supposed to be looking for the correct one. And uh, I'm at least as much looking to dismiss the four wrong ones. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm going to let the correct answer convince me that it's right. Yeah. Right. I'm not trying to look for it and help it. And like, Oh, maybe you mean this? Like, yeah, cool. That'll work. Right. I hear students say that like, but this one would work. Right. (laughs) I was like, no, it's not about making it work. It's about it either is or is not, you know, it has to tell you that it works, not you trying to shoehorn it in there. If you ever find yourself trying to help an answer choice, it's probably just not the answer. Yeah. So we presume that they're wrong. 80% of the time they're wrong. And then the one out of five, that's the right answer. It should actually sort of pop up and it needs to be convincing you that it's the right answer. Okay. Um, so that's it for Georgetown. Thanks George, uh, for writing in to the show. What is this thing here with the uh, reading comprehension tip? Yeah. So this, um, this, uh, thing about justice Alito is from one of my current students. She's, uh, taking the class and <clears throat> she went to the Supreme court back in February. And I guess while she was there listening to oral arguments for a case that had to do with, um, minimum sentencing guidelines, I guess, I mean, I'm not familiar with this at all, but, uh, when someone brings a weapon to a crime and you're a part of that crime, you know, of course you're going to, even if you're not directly involved, you're sure, still going to be criminally, uh, or you could be guilty for something. And there are minimum sentencing guidelines that say, Hey, you have to go to jail for three years or five years or whatever. But a lot of times I guess judges overrule these, you know, minimum sentencing guidelines and they say, Hey, no, you know, you only have to go for a year or something like that. And I guess this case was dealing with whether or not um, the judges could do that, whether the minimum really was the minimum. And this attorney was arguing, I think, uh, for one of those – I don't know which side it was, but it doesn't matter. The, the attorney was arguing for one side or the other. <laughs> and sure. as the attorney was talking in this oral argument, Justice Alito interrupted and said, maybe you just haven't thought this through. And the the attorney stopped and was sort of surprised. And I guess apparently people in in the courtroom started laughing, unfortunately. Um, poor attorney. <clears throat> wow. and, uh, and then just Alito, partly probably in response to that laughter, said, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just saying maybe you have or maybe you haven't thought through this. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that she was telling me this story is that at the end of my reading comprehension tips, the very last well, – one of the last things I ask, you know, after all this stuff about, hey, um, make sure you understand what's going on, reread sentences you don't understand, you know, clarify things, step back, think about the passage, yada, yada, yada. The very last question I ask is, is how would you prepare for an oral argument before SCOTUS? And my thought was that everyone in the world would prepare tremendously and know exactly what the heck is going on. But apparently not everyone does, or at least thinks through (laughs) the issues as thoroughly as they should. But you should at least think thoroughly through every passage before you go into the questions. That's the bottom line. Nice. Yeah. I I like to tell people um, 
with reading comprehension, you need to read the passage as if your boss asked you to read it Mm -hmm. and then go tell her what it's about. Yeah. And so we could maybe make that Justice Alito. Yeah. (laughs) You know, like if, if you have, you get to go, you get to tell Justice Alito what this passage is about in one sentence or maybe less than one sentence, right? Three words. (laughs) You get three words before he cuts you off and says something insulting. Yeah. So think about it now, you know, choose your words carefully. What is this passage about? What would I tell Justice Alito if I had three words to explain this passage? What would those three words be? And, you know, really let it sink in for a second. Yeah. And be prepared to answer any question that he might follow up with. Right. Like, yeah, well, but I mean, he is going to ask you detailed questions at which point it's totally okay to refer back to the document. Mm -hmm. But for the main point question, you know, and, and by the way, the main point question on reading comprehension is really important because it also kind of influences all of the other questions on the, that they're going to ask you, you know, you, you got to get the main point and you got to kind of pick answers that are in keeping with the main point generally. Yeah. It's a whole bunch of must be trues, right? So it's like, Hey, you either did or did not comprehend the passage. And if you didn't comprehend the main point, they're going to beat you up on not just the main point question, but also the detailed questions. So you got to have a really good sense. Like here's what they want, you know, here's why they wrote this thing. Mm -hmm. And, 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 be predicting the answer for sure. For the main point question, you have to predict the answer. And then um, for the detailed questions. Yeah. I think, I think it's sometimes you're going to just know the answer, but sometimes you're going to say, Oh sure. Hold on a second. Oh yeah. That's right here. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. In line uh, 47, we see here's the evidence for uh, the answer to the question that you're asking me. Yeah. I, I agree with that completely. I definitely feel like it's okay to go back. I, I would say though that, um, I probably go back for like one question, a passage. And when I do really understand the passage, a lot of times I will be reading an, an answer choice and I will say, no, the passage said the opposite of this, or yes, this is yeah. exactly what the passage said. And then we'll be talking yeah. about it in class and people will be like, why is this wrong? And I'm like, well, the passage literally said the opposite of that. And they're like, where? And I'll be, uh, I don't know where <laughs> let's, let's go look and I'll, I'll try And it might take even some time to find it. But if you read the passage thoroughly and, actively and you're responding to the text as you read it and you're thinking, what, that's stupid or that's, that makes sense or that's a good point. Then when these things come up, you remember them, you know, and I'm not saying like you're saying that you need to remember everything, but it's surprising to me how much is there and also not surprising. I mean, it's only a half a page, right? So like how much of this do you really uh, need to like memorize you don't you just you no, just it's read not it. reading memorization it's reading comprehension but you do you do if you're paying attention if you're actively engaged as you're as you're reading if you're really following along and like in got your teeth into it then yeah of course you're gonna have you're gonna remember that they said that they either did or didn't say that and especially if the answer choice is something kind of strong or you know powerful extreme they either did or didn't say that mm-hmm. 
if they did, it's the answer. If they didn't, it's not. Yeah. And it's, it's easy as that. But if you, if you even go a little bit too fast, you know, you're skimming the surface just a little bit, not really engaged, then, then now none of the answers look good. And now you're going back and you're essentially reading the entire passage again, which you just, that you definitely don't have time to do that. Okay, good. I like that tip. I like that image of, uh, yeah, bringing something to the Supreme Court (laughs) (laughs) and saying, here, this is your honors. This is what it was about. Cool. Um, Nathan, listening to another podcast and heard the hosts ask the audience to rate them on iTunes. They said that the more and presumably better the rating, the easier it is to find a podcast. I don't recall y'all ever doing that. Yup, y'all. Uh, and that is from Leslie. Um, thanks Leslie. Yeah, that's a a good point. Hey listeners, please, uh, rate and review us on iTunes. Even if all you do is hit the five stars or whatever, you could hit two stars if you think we suck. But if you hit the five stars, um, that's already doing a lot to help, uh, our search ranking and all that kind of stuff. Uh, if you want to type a quick review of the show, that's even better. Um, and of course, if you want to tell a friend and share us on social media and all that kind of stuff, we do really appreciate that. Um, we spend a little bit of money to produce the show. We spend exactly $0 to promote the show. Um, so if you want to give us some encouragement and help us spread the word, we would really appreciate you helping us any way you can. Yeah, you know, I just had a realization. Uh, if we push the whole ratings thing, like halfway through the show or near the end of the show, the only people who are left are the people who might find some <laughs> value in the podcast, right? So this could be a biased survey, but that's exactly what we need. So that's great. Yeah, we want a biased survey. <laughs> yeah, we should say it at the very end of the show. <laughs> if you made it this far. <laughs> if you made it this far, please write a review rhapsodizing about how great the show is (laughs) because you clearly love it for some reason. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Next one. Hey, Ben and Nathan, thanks for putting together such a fantastic podcast. I've been listening for a few weeks and really can't get enough of it. Yeah. You need to copy and paste that into a review in iTunes. That's exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. Um, I'm one of those full-time workers who listens to the podcast at the office when I'm pulling mindless reports but I mostly tune in on my commute. So thanks also for making my drive to and from work less hellish and contributing to the decline of my road rage. If you'd like to read my email on the show, you can call me Bertha. All right, Bertha. Thanks for writing in. I've signed up for the June administration and wanted to get your thoughts on my current situation and what I should be doing these next seven-ish weeks before the test. As I said earlier, I work full-time I've currently been studying by taking one or two timed sections during lunch and reviewing them in the evening. I've also been taking full tests about once every two weeks, but plan to make that a weekly thing. I started off with a 154, and I'm now hitting between 171 and 175. Wow. Wow, yeah. My goal is as high as I can get, so I'm feeling good about where I am, though I still have some room for improvement. Since I'm going about minus three on reading comprehension and minus four to minus nine combined on logical reasoning. So looking like perfect on games then if you're in the 170s, right? Yeah. 
if you're missing that many on the verbal sections, yeah. So all the mistakes are coming from reading comprehension and logical reasoning at this point. Yep. Okay. What advice do you have for people who are at or near their target score but have a decent, a decent chunk of time left before the test? I've heard some suggestions about shaving off allowed time, so 30 minutes instead of 35 per section. Mm. No. I'm going to say a hard no on that. Nope. I'm going to say a hard no on that and consider not trusting whatever source that was that told you to do that. Because to me, that's like the exact opposite of what you should be doing. Um, I, I should come forward and confess here that I have given this advice before, but it's a very specific situation. And that is, okay. uh, regarding old, old, we're talking tests one through, uh, 38 reading comp, which are easier. I think they're hands down easier. And I think they're kind of useless except for some of them in there, which I've combined into a book of reading comp, hard reading comp passages. But in any uh-huh. case, I think they're basically useless. So if you're going to spend your time doing them and you're already doing well on recent reading comp, then maybe one way to make them a little bit more challenging is to try to do them faster. Part of the reason they're more, they're easier is that the wrong answers are all much more different from the correct answer than on much more recent tests. I've noticed that like the correct answer and the most tempting wrong answer are very close to each other and they might be off by like a word or two on the recent test. Whereas in older tests, there's nothing that's even close to the correct answer. And so it's, it's, it's very easy to go through those and be like, Oh, well this is wrong. And so I, I don't know how much value there is in there, but if you've done everything and you're looking for a reading comp, I might suggest people go back and do those. And for some people I might've said, Hey, do them in like 32 minutes or something like that. Yeah. But all right, it's um, in general, that's really bad advice because you want to give yourself the exact circumstances that you're going to be performing in. And get used to those. Make sure you're using a bubble sheet because that will take a minute or two off of your time anyway. And so you get yeah. used to bubbling and all that stuff. But there's no reason in um, creating an environment that you're not going to experience. Yeah. And anyway, if you go back and do those old reading comprehension sections, put 35 minutes on the clock and just do the whole section. If you're really good at reading comprehension, you're not you're going to be finishing way before the 35 minutes anyway. Sure. So yeah. I don't know that there's any point in trying to finish five minutes early. It's not like you get bonus points by finishing five minutes early. You know, like you get an extra point for every two minutes you finish early or something. Like that's not how it works. So um, I would I would assume that if those passages really are easier, students are just going to be finishing with a lot of time left. And if you finish with a lot of time left. That's fine mm-hmm. as long as you get them all right. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you missed some, then you probably needed to go slower, not go faster. So I, I don't like this idea of shaving off time. Um, I think we might've talked about it before. Really bad advice out there. Like, Hey, make sure you do the first 10 logical reasoning questions in 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to, you need to push yourself so that you can get those first 10. Those are the easy ones and you need to make some time on those. So make sure you get the first 10 done in 10 minutes. I mean, that's like the worst advice I've ever heard about the LSAT. It's just so stupid. And it trains people. A lot of times it's exactly, that's exactly why people are struggling so much with the test mm-hmm. is because they're making it hard for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so yeah, I, I don't, I don't like this idea, uh, for Bertha. Let's see. She also says, what about taking the test in stressful slash loud places? Uh, again, I, I don't think it's ideal because when you get questions wrong, then how much does that have to do with the loudness and how much of it has to do with your performance or your abilities? Yeah. That sounds like you're training yourself to perform poorly on the test. You know, like I've had people say, oh yeah, so I decided to, I'm, I'm going to do my timed sections on the BART train. Yeah. Like, all right. With the screaming baby and the kids coming on and doing a dance performance in the middle of the car and with the people bumping and jostling you and the train announcements and like, that's, uh, I understand why you're doing it. I understand the theory but just because I understand the theory doesn't mean that's actually a good idea. So on the day of the test, you're going to be sitting in a pretty quiet room with some other fellow test takers. And so if you want to replicate that, I mean, that's good. Do that at a library or something, you know, yeah. do it at a, maybe a Starbucks where there's some distractions around, but I don't think you need to be going into like the, <laughs> the lion's cage at the zoo or something. <laughs> no, and I do I do actually think that is very valuable because what this comes down to is recreating what you're going to experience. So if you're in ur- if you're in an urban area and likely going to be taking the test with a room full of people or at least yeah. you know, cuz the smaller smaller rooms are going to be much quieter, but even then you're taking tests near people and I have definitely talked to people who have taken tests on their own. And that's great. And there's really not going to be much of a difference between that and the official thing, but they come in and they take a test with other people. And at least the first time they're like, it was, it was quiet, but still there are little noises here and there. And I needed to get used to ignoring them. I needed to get used to ignoring the fact that someone is turning their page before I did and stupid stuff. I mean, it's stupid stuff, but that's the kind of thing you are going to experience. So you might as well experience it now and get it over with. Yeah. I've had students like in this last class in San Francisco, I had a student who was talking about how he gets really distracted by noises and wanted to know if he was going to be allowed to wear earplugs during the test. And I said, uh, no, sir, you are not going to be allowed uh, to wear earplugs at the official LSAT. I don't, they, for whatever reason, you are not allowed to wear uh, earplugs at the LSAT. And so then he continued to wear earplugs in class during the time sections. And I was like, dude, I was just thinking, dude, really? Like why wait (laughs) this, this environment. Yeah. We're in a hotel and yeah, there's some like bustle that's happening out in the hallway and yeah, that probably won't happen on the day of the test. Although that's not totally it, crazy. I've heard people be next to a French class and they could hear like sub audible, <laughs> you know, like discussion wow. going through the wall. So, I mean, there's French weird... is, that's better than English at least, but <laughs> well, they said it was even almost more distracting because they were like, almost like trying to decipher it. You would try, but you know, you do stupid stuff when you're at the test, but yeah. Well, we, we talked about it before. I mean, we have stories of remember the one correspondent where there was literally a marching band yeah. warming up outside yeah. of the outside of the testing center. Um, so yeah, you, you do have to be prepared for possible distractions, but I think 
your immediate environment is going to be pretty quiet. The things that are going to be distracting you are potentially, you know, somebody's tapping their pencil, somebody's shuffling their pages around, somebody's tapping their foot. You got the proctor who has loud shoes. And yeah, you might hear sounds outside the room, that kind of stuff. But I think you need to put yourself in a basically quiet environment. And because then in a quiet environment, those little distractions become a lot louder. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. They don't get, but you don't need to like go to, yeah, you don't need to go to like a rock concert and try to do a section. I mean, that, that's (laughs) just not even close. Yeah. (laughs) Go to Metallica and yeah. Okay. Um, one other thing that worries me is that the June test starts in the afternoon rather than the morning. Working these last few years has turned me into the person I swore to my father I would never become a morning person. Some days I am prone to descending into zombification around 2 p.m. When I'm taking full practice tests, I usually avoid becoming a brain-eating drone by having a cup of tea before I start the test and then another during the break. I'm not a daily caffeinator, so I think this must be some circadian rhythm bullshit. Whoa. Um, <laughs> also known as CRBS. Some... <laughs> CRBS. <laughs> it's like a amped up version of BS. Uh, anyways, <laughs> this, this email is amusing. Uh, anyways, have you ever heard this concern from June test takers? And do you have any suggestions for how to avoid the mid afternoon slog other than caffeine? My current plan is to take some bottled tea with me, but I'm a little worried that come to the, uh, the come the third section, I will be thinking about splash mountain instead of identifying flaws. <laughs> arms up. That joke missed me. Wait, what? I get, the, I like the, the, I like the arms up emoji yeah. thing here. Yeah. Um, but I don't understand the Splash Mountain joke. Well, she's going to want to go pee. Oh. Right. That's what that means? I think. Spl- oh, okay. I've never heard people say that before. All right. She just said bullshit, and now she's using a euphemism for pee. All right. <laughs> good, good use. Okay, so. What do you think about this afternoon thing and the caffeine thing? Oh, so I have a couple thoughts about this, actually. First of all, let's talk about the caffeine thing. I think that's easier one to deal with. Um, Some people find that caffeine does help them focus more and thus do better on the test. Um, I don't know if that – I mean, that's purely anecdotal, but I think I've actually heard that in the context of studies. I'm not suggesting that anyone go out and buy caffeine for the sake of the LSAT, but I do suggest that – depending on whether you like caffeine or not, you should try it out. And here's the thing. She can find out whether or not she's going to start thinking about Splash Mountain by recreating the exact scenario that she's going to encounter. She's going to go take the test. She's going to have an opportunity to get a drink before the test starts. And then she's going to have to go through the instructions for like 45 minutes and then do the first three sections. Then she's going to have a break. Can she endure that time and not think about Splash Mountain? Um, or not. I mean, I would just recreate it and see exactly what happens when she tries to do so. And I mean, everyone should be doing that anyways. You should be figuring out like what you're going to eat at the break. I've had people who eat like thick chocolate brownies during the break and then say that they don't feel so good (laughs) 
during the last two sections. <laughs> it's like, I'm really glad you, you figured that out before doing that on test day. Um, you know, we've talked about this too before where people like do crazy breakfasts for the actual day. They eat like bacon, eggs and everything. They finally actually make themselves breakfast, whereas normally they don't eat breakfast at all. And now they're wondering why they're falling asleep in section two. I mean, you should just be doing as we were saying before, what you think you're likely going to be doing on test day and then see what, what works or doesn't work for you. Yeah, totally. And if, if she really does zombify every day at 2 PM, then that is going to be right during the middle of the test. So she probably needs to, to, to practice afternoon tests. It sounds like, yeah, if she can, um, so on Saturdays and Sundays, maybe she can like practice. Here's how I'm going to do it on Monday, June 12th. What time am I going to get up? Am I going to exercise in the morning? What am I going to eat for breakfast? You know, how am I going to do this? And then whether or not you do the caffeine thing, you know, you want to practice that and take the test starting at 1230, I guess. Well, so that's the thing is she probably would want to start around 130, right? I mean, they're going to. Oh, because registration and everything. Yeah, like it takes a while to get started. So she's call it one o'clock, maybe some some places. I think they get you cracking pretty quick. Oh, really? But yeah, around here well, it seems like it's typically like an hour. I don't know if that's just because there's so many people in DC taking the test and these centers are overbooked. But yeah. yeah. Any, anyway, yeah. sometime in the afternoon. So I do think this this uh, tiredness thing though is a thing and it is significant because I did a long time ago when I first started, I had tests in the evening and on Saturday morning. Now I just have them yeah. on Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon, I guess actually. But, um, then I had them in the evening and in the morning. I remember this one student after like near the very end of the class, he showed me his tests and he had taken something like 10 or 11 tests by this point. And half of them were in the morning and half of them were at night. And the ones that were at night were about eight points lower on average. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's always some variation, but that was a decent amount of data. And I said, he said, um, oh, I'm sorry. It was actually flipped. His night scores were eight points higher. And he Mm -hmm. said that he he was a night owl. And when he came to the test at night, they started at like 630. He was like, I'm here. I'm like paying attention. I know what's going on. But when I came to the Saturday morning test, I was just like still kind of waking up and groggy. And, uh, you know, the test requires focus and engagement. And so if you're tired and you get a bad score, people say this all the time. They're like, I don't want to blame it on my tiredness. And yeah, you don't want to blame it on your tiredness. Maybe you just suck. But, um, that's, that's a little harsh. I take that back. Maybe you just need to. No, most of the time, the reason why people score bad is because they suck. Yeah. (laughs) But maybe, maybe they need to improve. Uh, that's what I meant to say. Maybe there's something that you need to improve, but if you take it when you're tired, that's the precise problem is that you don't know. And it's a very real thing to have your score drop when I'm tired. I'm like, Oh, what's going on in this question? I don't know. So. Yeah. You, you get, cause CRBS, <laughs> you, get, you get attacked by C, CRBS. Dude, I think dude, this is a you, thing now. So when you're taking the LSAT, yeah. you could apply for accommodations on the basis of CRBS. <laughs> oh yeah. Nice. That's amazing. Um, Caffeine, uh, Ben, you're not a caffeinator. I'm not. Yeah, I am a caffeinator. 
but I don't know. I just do it because I like drinking coffee. I don't know that I like need it or anything. Um, I wouldn't okay. usually Nathan, recommend. You can need it. It's not a big deal, man. Oh, dude, it's the least of my vices, <laughs> so I'm not ashamed of it <laughs> in the slightest. Um, if you, I, I just wouldn't. You know, don't start drinking coffee just because of the LSAT. Yeah. And also, I would say don't stop drinking coffee just because of the LSAT. Yeah. Um, you got to do whatever you're going to do in kind of normal everyday life and uh, whatever you're doing on your practice tests for sure. Yeah. So um, I think that's maybe it for Bertha. Thanks, Bertha, for the amusing email. Now everybody's going to try to be funny when they write in. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right, Ben, I think that's it for today's show. You have anything else you want to add? No. Uh, just looking forward to the people who take the digital LSAT. So if you haven't signed up for that and you still can do so. I don't think you can. I think it's too oh. late for the signups for that now, but, um, we do want people to write into the show, uh, help at thinking LSAT.com. We have still a backlog of emails that we didn't get through today, but we will uh, keep grinding our way through those uh, subsequent episodes. So, yeah, thanks for writing, and uh, we will get back to you. We respond to every single email, by the way. So definitely write into the show, help at thinkinglset.com. So, Jay Fleischman, you are a lawyer. You uh, have a law practice called Shave and Fleischman LLP. Yep. Uh, you also are a podcaster. You have the student loan show, which is a podcast about student loans and you have a student loan law workshop where you teach lawyers about the practice of student loan law. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. We, we've taught, uh, I think we're up to 320 something, attorneys that we've trained over the course of the past four years in student loan resolution and doing the sorts of things that we do in our office. And I operate the workshop as a separate and distinct entity from my law firm. So my law firm partner is not my partner in the workshop. Uh, I do the workshops with uh, another student loan lawyer, Joshua Cohen, who's based out of Vermont. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. And this is a big business these days, apparently. Yeah. You know, I always tell people that I would love nothing more than to be rendered irrelevant in the market. Unfortunately, uh, that's not the case. There, there are a lot of people with a lot of debt and less information out there than I would like to see made available, which is part of the reason why I come on shows like this and why I've got my own podcast and my own blog and all that stuff. Um, in your practice, what types of people do you encounter with the most uh, student loan debt? Oh gosh, I've, I've worked with lawyers. I've worked with doctors. I've worked with graphic designers. I've worked with, uh, I've, I actually worked with somebody who has a PhD in theology. I it really runs the gamut. It's 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 an amazing cross section of humanity. Okay. And what types of outcomes are you are you hoping to get for these clients? What I try to do is I tell I tell my clients that my goal is to turn 
inoperable brain cancer into high cholesterol. Inoperable brain cancer, things don't really have a very good outlook, but high cholesterol, you take pill, you take better care of yourself, and you can manage it, and you can go on and live a healthy and productive life. So what that's really what I try to do. I try to help people get their student loans into a manageable situation. And if that's not possible, then we look at discharge options and uh, forgiveness options. And if it's a private loan, we look at um, settlement and defensive lawsuits and things like that. Wow. Um, so what's the first step of that look like when you, when you talk about just getting it in, into a manageable shape? You know, people call me up and the first thing that they ask for is how can I get out of my student loans? And it, and it's, it's a great opener, but the response that I would normally give isn't going to be a very happy response. Well, for the most part, that's not going to really be an option unless there are some extenuating circumstances. But so what I normally do is I'll answer a question with a question. Their question being, how do I get out of my student loans? And my question being, well, what are your real goals? What is it that, what is it that you feel like you're being held back from? What is it that you want to accomplish in, in your life financially, uh, career wise, you know, just lifestyle changes and, once I've got a better idea of what it is that the person is really looking for and, and what they're looking for is it, it could be any number of things. Um, it could be, well, um, my significant other and I are looking to get married, but we're worried that this is going to weigh us down or my significant other is pregnant and We've got to figure out how to be able to afford a child and my student loans. I'm looking to retire in three years. I want to go back to school. Uh, they took my tax return. Whatever it is, um, once we know what the immediate problem is and what the what the long-term goal is, then we can start talking about how to make the student loans either get out of the way of that goal or fit in with that goal. Um, and it, and it really does change the conversation and it helps people get their own understanding of why they are where they are and where it is that they want to be. Um, once we've done that, we start to, we start to split up the student loans. What's federal, what's private, uh, because there are different solutions that exist depending upon what kind of loan that we have. And then from there, we'll walk down various options and help the uh, help the client determine which one is best for them and help them put an action plan together. How did you get into this practice? Uh, where did you go to law school? How did, how did you kind of get from there to here? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I am born and raised in New York. I went to uh, Buffalo Law School because it was the only, and, and still is uh, the only state law school. There's a there's the City University of New York. Uh, that's a city law school, but I wanted to leave New York City, um, so Buffalo is the only state University of New York uh, outpost that has a law school. So I went there, and um, 
I graduated in 1994, which makes me officially old. Um, started my own practice in December 1995 because I was too young and too stupid to know all the things that I didn't know, um, <laughs> which in hindsight was a great thing. Sure. Um, you know, it because if I had known, I probably never would have done it. I became a consumer bankruptcy lawyer and practiced in that field more or less exclusively up until about 10 years ago, then started getting into debt collection, defense, credit reporting issues as they as they pertain to consumer bankruptcy. Uh, and then about five years ago, which would have been uh, 2012, just in case anybody's listening to this show 10 years from now. Um, so in 2012, my family and I were going to be moving from New York to LA. And right before I left, I met a guy named Joshua Cohen, and he was running a one-day workshop in student loans. And he encouraged me to come up because he thought that it might be a good fit for me. So I went up and I learned it and I came out to LA and by hook or by crook, people started calling me just for student loans as opposed to anything else. And over the course of the next, the, the intervening five years between then and now, it's become absolutely everything that I do. Um, hmm. Every single case that, that I deal with, every client that I have uh, surround is, has student loans surrounding them. Um, we still do bankruptcy in the office. My partner does primarily the bankruptcy work. I'll jump in when there's a student loan issue, but if there's not, he'll handle the bankruptcy work. And he's been practicing for uh, 40 or 41 years now, uh, and he's based in New York. Okay, you're an LA partners in New York. Yeah, I, doing- I I I go back and forth. So I'm I'm in New York uh, one out of every five weeks. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what part of LA are you in? Uh, I am in Pasadena. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, I'm all the way on the west side, so we're in two different cities, basically. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's a different universe, but then again, Pasadena is a different universe from Brooklyn, which is where I'm from. Yeah, sure. Definitely. Um, so this is a, a promising area of practice. If I'm a law student or if I'm an LSAT student thinking about law school, is this a credible career path to be thinking about? Sadly, yes. Um, you know, the cost of higher education is bananas and anybody anybody who's been to college within the past five years or, or grad school or, or thinking about it knows that. But the amount of money that you can expect to make coming out of even undergrad versus the cost of that undergraduate career, there's such an enormous disparity. I mean, what USC is $100,000 a year. And I don't know if either one of you are USC grads, and I'm not, but USC is a good school. But I'm not paying $400,000 for an undergraduate education, but a lot of people do. And so if you're coming out of a four-year college with four hundred dollars or even two hundred dollars or even $100,000 in student loan debt, an undergraduate education is the new high school education. That's what it is. You're, you're not coming out of a four-year education owing 
you know, $100,000, but you're going to make 150 a year so that you can readily afford um, those student loan payments. So understanding that, yeah, this is an enormous market opportunity for attorneys. Um, there are not very many lawyers out there who consider themselves as student loan lawyers. Um, but by the same token, there are so many other fields that touch student loans. There is, um, there's of course, bankruptcy and, uh, debt collection and, uh, credit reporting issues. But beyond that, there's family law issues. Family separates, splits up. Who's going to pay for college? Who's going to pay the student loans that the parents took out for the kids, uh, for the kids' education? Sure. If one parent, uh, if if one spouse was paying the student loans of the other spouse, maybe they went back to school and came back out during the marriage. How is that going to be apportioned? Um, it touches immigration issues. It touches it touches mental health issues. If you're not going to be, uh, if you're not going to be an attorney, it, it, employment law, everything is just soaked in humanity and student loan issues. Um, which is really how so many of the graduates of the workshop are using the information and the education that they're getting. Um, it, it it's it's everywhere. Um, you mentioned the questionable return on investment from a four hundred thousand dollar USC bachelor's, and and all the USC grads are going to send you hate mail now. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Yeah, we or, we or we talk about the issue similarly on the show all the time, except yeah. for we're talking about the questionable value of a JD for you know two or three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, any opinions? <laughs> any opinions about that? Yeah, I I think that. Um, well, uh, let me tell you. Let me tell you how I came to go to law school and and you'll realize very quickly that I could not I, I could not have the same rationale now unless uh, I was insane. I entered undergraduate uh, in August of 1987. I immediately declared that I was going to be an economics major because that's what I was going to do. And I planted a flag in the ground. And a month later in September, I think it was late September of 1987, Stock market crashed. Uh, the entire uh, the real estate market crashed shortly thereafter. That when I was ready to think about what I was going to do after college, Wall Street still hadn't recovered. There were no jobs, and here I was still an economics major. Forget about why I didn't just change my major to something else. But I was an economics major, so there were no jobs. What was I going to do? Well, I was going to go to law school. So I went to law school for three years. Came out the other side and figured, well. I've got a degree. I've got my bar license. I might as well just go ahead and be a lawyer. I, I didn't go to law school because I had this intense love of the law. Um, and I think that so many people do that. So many people go to law school because they don't have the ability to get a job right away, or they think that lawyers make the big bucks. And we all know that that's <laughs> not the case. Right. Um you know, so those those people go to law school almost as a default, and a lot of my classmates did that. When I came out of 
when I came out of law school, I think I owed $28,000. <laughs> so it, it was a very different universe. I think that these days for a $300,000 degree, and there is tremendous value in the education I, from the right school at least. So I just want to put that out there. The education, I think, is tremendously valuable, but I don't know that there is a return on investment, and I surely don't think that spending $300,000 to avoid getting a job job is a really good idea. At the same time, I think people who are who are becoming lawyers because they watched one too many episodes of Law and Order or or The Good yeah. Wife or any of those things. I think uh, that's the dream that they that's the dream that's sold to all of us. I don't think that there is necessarily a return on that investment. I think that if you're thinking of going to law school and you're really thinking of it, I think that what you should be doing is get your undergraduate degree and go out there in the world for a little while. Yeah, maybe work for a law firm. Yeah, maybe work for government. Fine, if if that's what you want to do. But more to the point, go out and experience what else is out there that may grab your intellectual curiosity. And then if later on, based upon that maturity of thought and experience, you want to go to law school and you have an understanding of what it's going to cost and what you're going to make on on the way out, sure, go to law school then. But just doing it when you finish when you finish undergrad, I think that's a huge mistake. Yeah, well put. Um, I think we've tried to say the same thing a million times on the show. Maybe we haven't said it quite so well. Uh, ben, <laughs> do you have uh, any questions for Jay? Yeah, Jay. Um, first of all, I have to say that when you said a hundred thousand for USC, instantly I was thinking that was for the whole four years. And then you said 400,000. I'm like, Oh boy, I'm really out of touch here. I can't believe how much. Hey, that's counting. That's living expenses too, right? Jay? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, that can't be tuition. No, no, no. no. It's, 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 yeah, it's, it's full cost of attendance. So like 60 tuition and 40 living or something like that. Oh, so that, uh, yeah, you're right. That's cheap now. Just 60. <laughs> yeah, no, I just looked it up. Yeah, you're, you're spot on. It's, well, it says 69. So it's, it's about 69 for tuition and then, 30 living. yeah, 60 okay. or whatever. But anyways, um, <laughs> so that is a Jeez. huge number. And like you said, uh, college is now high school, right? It's, it's just yeah. part yeah. of the course. And so paying that much for something that everyone else has is crazy. Although it's crazy not to get it too, probably in some cases. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I was curious. I don't know if you probably, this is a very specific number and, and it may be, may be too hard to answer this question, but I was just curious if you had a sense for what percentage of attorneys end up with student loan problems. Like if, if you look at all the attorneys going to law school and then coming out these days, do half run into problems? 25%? Is that small or do you have any sense of that? I, I do know that in 2016, 1 million federal student loan borrowers across the board went into active default. <laughs> I do, which is insane. Wow. Insane. I know that 
uh, just about half of all federal student loan borrowers across the board are not making payments on their loans for one reason or another. Either they're in, they're rolling forbearances or they're, uh, in a hardship deferment or they're in active default just across the board. Okay. So I, I think that I think that if you want to say that that half holds true for attorneys too, it's probably not that far off the mark. I really wouldn't be surprised if it weren't far higher than that. Um, it, it's really, really bizarre. And, and uh, I, I guess – my worldview has been tainted by living in Southern California for the past five years, but the market for new lawyers is awful. I mean, I've, and, and this just isn't just fallout from the recession when obviously even the big firms weren't hiring, but I'm seeing new lawyers coming out of law school in Southern California, in Los Angeles, and they're making $24,000 a year as independent contractors, which means that they're responsible for their own tax payments. So I can only imagine that if we extrapolate that to to a larger portion of the country, I really wouldn't be surprised if 70% of, of graduating attorneys are having problems in some to some extent, with repaying their student loan debt. I, I wouldn't be shocked by that number at all. Huh. Wow. Yeah. You're blowing my mind. <laughs> I mean, f- 50% yeah. in, in default? That I mean, that makes me think that this whole student loan thing is like a, a giant sort of it's almost like a Ponzi scheme yeah, kind of a that's thing. What I was thinking exactly. Well, well, for the private loans, it is for the the private loans are are amazing. See, the federal loans, there are all of these income dependent repayment options that you can pay for twenty to twenty five years. Any unpaid balance can get wiped out at the end of that. Uh, yeah, there may be a tax consequence, but that's kicking the can 20, 25 years down the road. There's public service loan forgiveness, which is 10 years of income-dependent repayments, followed by a, by a tax-free forgiveness. So the, the federal loans are really not the problem. Everybody thinks that they are, but they're not. The private loans are the problem. The private loans are given out by private lending institutions. Over 95% of them require guarantors. So that means mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, uncle, aunt, benefactor, what have you, is also going to be fully uh, responsible in the event that the student doesn't doesn't own up to it and 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 pay. Um, so you've you've got that aspect. Most of those loans are adjustable rate. So and and they adjust on a monthly basis. This isn't like a mortgage <laughs> where it's every year. Oh, try to do crazy. try to do the accounting on one of those collection accounts, and you know, unless you're unless you were an accounting major, you're not going to be able to do it. Um, so you've got that. You've got um, for federal student loans when you go into forbearance, you can get up to three years of forbearance on any federal student loan, no problem. For private student loans, there's no right to a forbearance or a deferment, and and this is just blows my mind. When the lender gives you a forbearance, a lot of these promissory notes allow the lender to charge you money 
to put you into forbearance above and beyond the continuing interest. So can't afford to make the payments. Okay. Well, here's more money that you owe that, that makes no sense. Um, interest capitalizes when you come out of forbearance, which means that interest becomes principal, new interest accrues based on that new principal. So that's why you've got this spiraling debt. Um, a lot of the private student loans can go up to, I've seen private student loans that go up to 30 years. A student loan is the new mortgage. There are limitations on the ability to wipe out any student loan in bankruptcy, which means that in the private student loan world, um, it is an amazing investment opportunity on Wall Street because private student loans are packaged and securitized in exactly the same way that mortgages are and were. And anybody who lived through the mortgage meltdown understands what the what what the outcome of that is. Um, it's it is a Ponzi scheme. It's 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 I. Well, that's kind of a legal term, but it, it's a house of cards. Absolutely. Yeah. And in this case, it's almost like the schools um, are playing the role of the uh, like the ratings agencies, right? Because mm-hmm. the school is the one that's certifying this student to come to their school. And that's supposed to be an indication of creditworthiness. But if the admission standards decline and, and if four years later, you're not able to find a, a fancy lawyer job like you thought you were going to be able to find, then these loans were already issued in the past. So we could have another, another like real estate or the, like the mortgage meltdown could totally happen with student loans, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's interesting you say that the schools are taking the place of the ratings agencies it, it's, as far as the mortgage situation was. And I think that that's a really good point. You've got, but but more to that, the schools have everything to gain yeah. by you getting those loans. My my undergraduate education, it was at, at the school was called SUNY Binghamton. Now it's Binghamton University. It's, in, it's uh, the southern tier of New York. It's that flat part right between New York, right where... Uh, the southern part of New York hits the northern part of Pennsylvania. It's due south of Syracuse. Great school. Uh, it had about 12,000 students undergraduate while I was there. And I think the total cost of attendance was like four grand when I left in 91. So it was forever ago, but it was about four grand. Um, and it was a school. I went to, I, I lived in a dorm and I had crappy dorm furniture and I ate crappy dorm food. And it was, it was, utilitarian um my friends and i go back to to the college campus every 10 years and um last time we were there which was i don't know three years ago my god this place is more luxurious than a lot of (laughs) a lot of hotels i've stayed in um and you know the universities have a vested interest in getting more people into more loans and because they they're upgrading their facilities and they're bringing in more talent um you talk about the decline in admission standards that goes back to investors because a big a, a big part of the mortgage meltdown was 
investors made a lot of money at the beginning. And when they make a lot of money, they come back to the investment firm and they say, we want to do this again. We want to make more money. Okay, well, to make more money, we've got to have more mortgages and more securitizations so that we can have greater profit. That's that's how it goes. Well, eventually you run out of what's called a paper. You run out of the really well-qualified people. So you go to the B, you go to the C, and then you start looking for people with faint heartbeats and and you're good to go. And that's where (laughs) the problem comes in. Same thing here. Exact same thing here. That's your Corinthian colleges, your ITT, your, you know, your, your, uh, Le Cordon Bleu, your Arts Institute, all of these for profit colleges where people, you know, so long as you've got a faint heartbeat, there's, there's going to be some place that's, that's going to let you in. Um, and they're going to give you a loan and you're going to be on the hook for it. And look, the, and, and I tell, I tell kids this all the time. The world is always going to need a plumber, especially on Sunday night when my pipes get backed up. I'm not going to be looking for a CPA. I'm going to be looking for a plumber. You don't have to go to college to do well. It's not for everyone. Yeah. Any thoughts about... uh we we had the news this last week about uh, Whittier Law <laughs> shutting down. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, I've got I've I've got friends who are Whittier grads. Um, yeah, really, and and some of them are really smart, really smart people that just happen to go to Whittier. Um, I think it's a shame for the students. I think it's it's a shame for all of the people who graduated in the past who are now hobbled by the fact that their resume is suddenly gutted um, because their education is is now more highly suspect than it may have been before. Um, but I think that it's, it's symbolic of the changes that we're seeing and that w- we will continue to see in higher education over the course of the next decade, certainly. Um, I think we're going to start seeing more schools closing the way the Corinthian and ITT did. I think that we're going to see more online learning, not necessarily for the lower the lower tier of schools. I think that we've already started seeing more online learning at the higher levels of schools, the better schools, um, because more and more people are looking to reduce their cost of going to school. So we're going to we're going to see more people opting to stay at home and get their education online and and it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out, but you know, everybody says there are too many lawyers as it is. <laughs> Does a recent Whittier grad have any recourse here because Whittier is closing down or is it just like well, too bad? Well, there is such a thing as uh, it's called a closed school discharge for federal student loans. If you were a student at at any uh, undergraduate or graduate school of any sort, within 120 days of the date that the school ceased operations, and you did not use that education, you didn't transfer your credits anywhere, you didn't do uh, what's called a teach out, any of that stuff, um, then you can get your federal student loans wiped out, uh, forgiven, discharged, tax-free. 
for private student loans, and a lot of people don't know about this, there are things called STRFs, Student Tuition Reimbursement Funds. They are state-based. Not every state has one. California does. Um, And what those exist for is to reimburse students of schools that have closed within a short period of time of their um, of their attendance as well. And so if you've got a private student loan, you may be able to apply to that STRF if your state has one and get reimbursed by that fund for the unpaid balance of the of the private student loan or in the alternative uh, for any money that you may have gone out of pocket for that school as well. So that that's something that uh that that may help some people uh for people who graduated a long time ago uh i don't know if you're already barred and you already have uh you you've already got your your credentials i think that it's going to be a tough road to just trying to get out of it unless something something else is going on in your individual situation it it feels like the parallels to the housing situation continue because at the end of the day, it sounds like the taxpayer fits the bill, right? I mean, if these things fall apart. Uh, yeah, kind of, but it's it's an argument that people make all the time and I don't really feel good about the argument because the taxpayers aren't footing the bill in as much as they're required to pay money out. Um, it, what's, what's really happening is the government is getting less money in than would be the case if they got paid in full for, for the federal student loans. So it, it U.S. Department of Education isn't out there cutting checks. Um, they're just getting less in. And given the fact that the federal government made, uh, I forget the number, but it's something billion annually on student loans, they make a lot of money on this stuff. And so I think that there's an argument to be made for should the federal government be making money off the backs of the people who ostensibly own the federal government. I mean, the federal government represents and and is elected uh, at some level by the populace. So you've got the federal government making money off of off of the populace, and and I don't know how I feel about that. Oh, that's interesting. I thought that uh, federal loans were just private loans that were regulated by federal rules, no. as opposed to you're saying the federal government is literally loaning the cash. Yeah, at this point, every federal student loan made after July 1st, 2010 is called a direct loan. Hmm. And under the direct loan program, the U.S. Department of Education is lending you the money directly. Uh, Prior to July 1st, 2010, U.S. Department of Education also had the direct loan program, but there was was another program called the FEEL program, F-F-E-L, whereby private lenders were lending federally guaranteed funds. Mm. So Citibank would lend $50,000 and the government would say, okay, well, if the borrower doesn't pay, then we'll step in and we'll cover the loss. Mm-hmm. And then we'll get to, and then we'll become the direct lender in that case. Wow. Yeah. Um, awesome. Well, Jay, you've been very generous with your time. Um, 
thanks so much for coming on the show. Is there anything, how, how do people get in touch with you if they would like to uh, learn more? Sure. You can check out my website at consumerhelpcentral.com. You can find the podcast at studentloanshow.com, or you can just enter my name into the magic Google machine and uh, you'll find me wherever fine books and records are sold, as they used to say. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Well, thanks so much, Jay, um, for coming on the show. I think this was very helpful for our audience. No problem. Yeah, thanks. No problem, guys. Thanks for having me. 